You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference, and I'm truly honored today to be joined by two really interesting and diverse guests. As we've looked across the last few years of submissions to conference through our call for speakers, I've been struck by the tremendous diversity of those in the cybersecurity industry. You know, obviously, there's no clear one map to follow to get from early academic pursuit to the office of the CISO. It's a fascinating study that I think speaks to the unique soft and hard skills in our industry, which is clearly changing year by year. So today we're welcoming a veteran cybersecurity expert, veteran in many senses of the word, and an up-and-coming star who we met through our Security Scholar Program, which is a scholarship program RSA Conference has offered for several years to students from across the U.S. who are nominated to join by their professors. Maggie and Kim, welcome, and can you please introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure. Uh, so I'm Maggie. Like Britta said, I was part of the Security Scholars Program at RSA. I started becoming interested in InfoSec While an undergraduate at Stanford, I was doing electrical engineering and became really interested just in digital systems in general and how they communicate with each other, which naturally led to sort of examining the implications of different protocols and things that might need hearing or things that might lead to an insecurity or a vulnerability. And so I began to work first through internships with a few defense contractors and private security companies. And then after I graduated, I joined a startup uh, in the Bay Area that was doing cyber risk. And now I've just joined Duo Security, just acquired by Cisco, as a data scientist doing authentication and fraud detection. Maggie, it is a pleasure to meet you. I'm Kim. I'm the old guy of the two of us. Uh, my background is a little bit different from others. I cut my teeth in the military. I'm a former Army intelligence officer and West Point grad. I spent about 11 years chasing bad guys tactically and strategically in various places around the world. While I was there, I saw the military begin to evolve its thinking as we started to look at network systems and start asking questions in the intelligence and counterintelligence space about why are we concerned about paper dead drops, et cetera, when we have these things called floppy disks, Google that if you're too young to remember what those are, Who, where you could put a safe's worth of information and steal it away in your cargo pocket or that machines are talking to one another. So I got involved in some of the Army's early efforts to understand that space, applying my computer science degree from the academy, um, and continued my, you know, the later part of my career beginning to look in those areas. When I went to the civilian sector, after spending about uh, four years in consulting, I went in-house and took my first chief information security officer role in 2003. Between 2003 and 2016, I sat the chair in various companies. In 2016, I left the corporate sector and went to work for Arizona State University. And we are also, by the way, participants in the RSA Conference Security Scholars Program and helped build their cybersecurity concentration here at ASU with the intent of combining 
an interdisciplinary program that brings people from a technology standpoint, but also understands governance, risk, and communication fundamentals. So that's my journey. This is great. This is, again, what I love about this industry. So two people, two completely different paths, both very committed to helping the world be a safer place. So thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. So now I would like to join our virtual audience and, and really listen to the two of you as you explore your journeys. Uh, Maggie, do you want to kick us off with a question for Kim? Sure. And it was great to hear about your career and the different changes that you've made. What was a time that you felt like you had a difficult decision to make, whether that was, you know, going to Arizona State or any sort of juncture in your career where you weren't sure what to pursue next, and then how did you decide what to pursue? Well, I'll be honest with you. It uh, first came when I left the service. I went to the academy fully planning to stay for 20, 25 years, and circumstances were such that I looked at the possibility after wandering into too many dangerous places and getting shot at a couple of times of, leaving my wife a widower and my three-and-a-half-year-old son without knowing his dad. Uh, The challenge, though, was when I stepped out here, there was nothing out here in the civilian sector that I found as not just mentally engaging, but ethically and morally appealing of depth for me uh, in terms of, you know, what I wanted to do for my career. I had always looked at the civilian sector and folks who were not, you know, I have no issues with money, believe me, but folks driven by money without having any sort of moral compass or any sort of higher purpose. And I spent a few years as I was trying to figure out my way in the world, trying to figure out what my career path was going to be where I felt that I could give back to the world, to the community at large, and continue to make a difference and stand in the gap. And I feel fortunate and privileged that the cyber industry and profession was still in its infancy and that I was able to move myself and my career in that direction and uh, found something that, you know, I, I go to work with a purpose every day. And for me, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. May I ask a similar question of you? Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, now that you are in the beginnings of your career, what's the one thing that either surprised you or you wish you had known before you set foot on this journey as a cyber professional? Wow. Yeah. So when I first was in a position in the cybersecurity industry, the first time was an internship after my freshman year of college. I had really sort of ended up there by accident. <laughs> I had a couple classes in computer science, but not much expertise at all in really anything that they were working with. And I saw a bunch of guys up against computers seeming to me like they knew everything that there was to know about the tools that they were using and sort of these obscure programming languages. And I thought that the amount of knowledge required to succeed in cybersecurity uh, was just an insurmountable obstacle. Uh, I thought that because I hadn't 
really programmed growing up that I was already far behind and, and way too behind these people who had been coding in their teens. But what I found to be the case is that most people in cybersecurity, like you emphasized, are really driven by the mission of keeping people safe. And again, thank you, thank you for your service. Um, it's definitely different as a private citizen in the cybersecurity industry, but there are still stakes involved and a lot of people are still motivated by protecting people's online lives. And I think because of that common unifying mission, people are very willing to share knowledge. People are very sort of collaborative in many ways. There are an increasing number of open source tools and open source projects. And I've I've realized that even people who seem like they know everything don't. (laughs) And it just comes down to knowing who to ask for help and when to ask for help and just being comfortable enough um, to do so. And so I am still very early in my career, like Britta said, but I do feel confident moving forward that I can reach out to people on my team and, and people I've met at conferences because the community sort of shares one common goal and it's not so cutthroat as it initially seems. So let me riff off of that a bit if I could, Maggie. Um, you mentioned, first, please add me to your Rolodex as a resource if it's helpful. Uh, secondly, you mentioned that mystique, for lack of a better term, in terms of, oh, my God, I didn't start getting my geek on and coding when I was nine. Therefore, I have <laughs> no idea if I'm going to be able to make it in cyber. That's a challenge that our profession has across the board. It is a challenge that we have in terms of attracting numbers. It's a challenge that we have in terms of attracting a diverse audience, et cetera. You know, as an old guy and as an old guy who also teaches college, what can I do and what can guys like me do to break that down? Because it's truly, I think, a barrier to entry, and it's an artificial barrier to entry. So mm-hmm. you know, from your perspective, having lived it, you know, what can I do to make it better as we talk about cyber out there? You know, I do think that is an artificial barrier to entry that does stop people from pursuing the field. And it's really so untrue, as I've come to realize, because cybersecurity, in my experience, has so many people from sort of non-traditional backgrounds. I just went to a conference uh, for women in security and privacy, and there were so many people that I met who are switching careers, who were coming from creative backgrounds, military backgrounds, uh, really all manner of of backgrounds, and I think if we just center those stories, that that would definitely be helpful to encourage people who might be considering going into information security uh, to sort of take the plunge. There's definitely imposter syndrome prevalent, and even just talking about these issues and bringing them into the open helps people who might be feeling like they don't have a sufficient background or don't have decision experience to be in their position, that they're not alone in thinking that is helpful. Yeah, there's a lot of 
folks that uh, because of what we do, we think we're Atlas and have the weight of the world on our shoulders and wonder if we're worthy or capable, et cetera, when all we're doing is just digging in and doing the best we can out there. And usually if you all dig in with good intentions, it's good enough. Now, I've asked a couple. It's your turn. Ask me anything. Sure. Since you did say that you entered the cybersecurity industry at its infancy, how do you think that it's changed? as an industry over the course of your career, major shifts in culture or technology? Good God, that, that's, a, uh, that's a large one. So there are a couple of areas that are worth exploring there. You first have the issues of us being moved from the back room to the boardroom, where we were just a technology problem that you could bury down within an organization and if you thought about it at all, it was because that some geek did something that stopped you from doing something to becoming an issue that is on the minds of the board and the population, you know, at large. So that, that's one. Two, you've also got the movement, which in part of this, you know, it dovetails in terms of our movement to the boardroom to a data driven economy and cloud-based technologies, which are allowing us to manipulate and process data even faster to pull information and intelligence out of seemingly mundane data, which increases and exacerbates the importance of security, as you well know. But from a profession standpoint, there's a trend that we're in the midst of right now in terms of pendulum swing that I've watched over... Uh, 20 years or now or so, you know, in the civilian sector, that concerns me. Way back when, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, that's like around the year 2000, um, <laughs> when we were beginning to move from the back room to the boardroom, there was an attitude that, okay, security is just yet another process that needs to be governed. And we have financial governance, we have supply chain governance, we have technology governance. Why don't we just apply the same standard governance principles out there to this thing we're calling information security? And we swung the pendulum far to the left regarding information assurance and creating governance programs, et cetera, to the point where, in my opinion, we drove a lot of the technical prowess and technical expertise out of protecting our assets and environment. That's a bad thing, and I think we've seen the consequences of that as cloud-based technologies and data-driven economies have scaled and increased. However, I think what we're seeing now is instead of seeing the pendulum swing back to center, we're seeing it swing all the way in the other direction, where it's all about getting the geek on, it's all about having been a hacker, it's all about coding, and we have forgotten the importance of governance, risk management, and just basic communications and maneuvering within the environment. And my fear, I'll I'll actually paraphrase what a good friend of mine in the human resources industry said to me about six months ago. Way back when, we hired people who were good at governance and good at communicating, et cetera, but they were only so-so at security. So we turned our hiring model around and hired very, very good technologists, and now we have an internal insurrection in people who are not promotable. So how do we get to the middle in terms of creating those leadership skills, those communication skills, along with those technical skills within the environment? And I guess 
my fear in terms of trends is instead of, as most things do, seeing the trend move from far left to the middle or from far right to the middle, we've moved from far left to the far right and are creating another set of problems within the environment. So those would be the things that are on my mind. There's a serendipitous fit between you two here. Um, Maggie, you wrote a really great LinkedIn post on the Help a Sister Up initiative that ran in Medium, and you talked a lot about, at least to me, what feels similar there. It's the human element over that culture fit. Can you maybe talk to, and this is something I know Kim and I have talked at length about what he just talked about, and a lot of his program that he's put together at Arizona State is going to be addressing that. And Kim is part of our program committee for our conference and the types of sessions we're looking to drive forward. But, but you have such a great thinking in and around this. Can you maybe talk about that post that you did and how companies perhaps can adopt those sorts of hiring practices day in and day out so that we really can start affecting cultures within organizations? So just to give a little bit more context, Help a Sister Up is a LinkedIn group that was spearheaded by Teresa Payton, who's sort of an incredible mentor in cybersecurity, was uh, formerly White House CIO, and uh, I actually met at the RSA conference. She's great. And yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so the stated purpose of Help a Sister Up is to encourage female participation in cybersecurity because we all know at this point that women are underrepresented in engineering roles, and that's particularly true in information security. One of the things that I wrote that I think is an underemphasized part of the role of someone in cybersecurity, the role of a technologist, is to be able to communicate and to explain what may be technical problems in a language that is comprehensible by everyone from decision makers at the organization, at the management level, to the end user of these different systems because that way everyone can gain a shared understanding of the problem and that will be extraordinarily useful in terms of coming to a workable solution. So I wrote that engineering in particular is more collaborative than people give it credit for, I think. There's often this image of a lone genius, and this goes back to sort of the perceptions of the field that we were talking about earlier. But really, any type of engineering is is very collaborative and involves a lot of teamwork and communication between different roles. I, I, I agree with what you're saying wholeheartedly. You know, I think we, as we've emphasized the need for cyber skills, have taken the emphasis off of, yes, it requires you to be able to communicate and collaborate. I have people in high school who approach me as a college professor talking about cyber saying, well, I just want a job where I don't have to talk to anyone. That is literally what they come and say to me and their perceptions of cyber. You know, I, I use this line about uh, there are people who believe that cyber are a bunch of pizza boys. Pizza boys are the ones you lock into a room, you shove pizza under the door, they'll solve any technical problem you give them, but please, God, don't let them have to talk to anyone, particularly someone of the opposite gender. You know, that, you know, and there are certain roles and places where that is not only in existence, but is required and necessary. 
But if you're going to affect change, and what we do is we affect change, I've got to be able to communicate the value and the benefit of that change. You know, what's the benefit of having a great idea or understanding the technology if nobody adapts or implements? And if you can't explain it, nobody adapts or implements. And I think we have done our profession. And by the way, I'm being, I want to be very clear. I know I have lots of very, very tech heavy friends who are absolutely exquisite and excellent communicators. But I also have a small group of tech heavy friends who pride themselves on their ability to be tech-heavy and telling everybody, well, if you don't get it, then you're stupid. Um, it's a small group. Occasionally, it's a vocal group. And I think it helps misdefine our profession. You know, I agree with you absolutely, Maggie, that that level and that understanding of how to collaborate, the need to collaborate, and how communication plays a role in that is key to the future of our profession. Either any profession, yes. but definitely any engineering profession. Yes. I recently read Protopia, a book by Emily Chang, and she writes in it something I didn't realize, which was at the infancy of Silicon Valley, it was believed that sort of antisocial personality traits were correlated with engineering ability, which is <laughs> not true, but they began hiring for those sorts of personality traits and the stereotype has persisted, particularly in cybersecurity. But the other thing that I wanted to mention was that so often you see job postings, even in uh, internal hiring conversations, you hear the phrase culture fit thrown around, or cultural fit, I suppose, which implies indirectly that you're hiring people who are similar to the people that are already on the team. And something that I heard for the first time, although I'm sure other companies use it as well, at my current company, they talk about hiring for cultural contribution, which I think is um, a fantastic perspective and a way to flip that around. That is fantastic. I like that approach. Here, Maggie, you've got a old guy, an old security guy, and a former CISO sitting here. You know, ask the question you wouldn't ask your current CISO. <laughs> well, I I think I would ask my current CISO too, but what are you most afraid of? What threats are top of mind right now for you? Those are two very different questions, and I'm going to answer them differently. People used to ask me that this equivalent of the question, what keeps you up at night? And I told, used to tell people I sleep like a baby. Um, <laughs> I'm going to let me be impertinent. How old are you, Maggie? I'm 23. Okay. Uh, one, you're younger than my kid, which scares me. Uh, but two, uh, at 26 years old, I was in an undisclosed location calling in live intel to a friend of mine downrange, uh, having not slept for 30-some hours, uh, trying to make sure that they stayed alive. You know, nothing I do in terms of gravity or impact compares to when I used to do things like that. So I really don't fear much <laughs> for that reason. You know, bad guys are out there. Bad guys have always been out there. There are people like yourself and like the legions of people listening to this podcast who are very good at sticking their sabers in the ground, grabbing their shields, standing in the gap, and saying, you are not going to pass. 
So fear is usually not a motivator or driver for me, nor is it for anyone who truly, in my opinion, does this work and does it with zeal, dedication, and passion like yourself. So that piece of the question is, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I know they're out there, and I know they'll occasionally win the battles, but, you know, it's like I used to tell people, you know, I ain't dead yet, so I'm going to get back up and I'm going to hit it again. So fear is not a motivator for me. In terms of what concerns me in terms of the threat, it's actually what concerns me in terms of the attitudes of the population regarding the ubiquitousness of both connectivity and data. We give away our data willingly, freely, and eagerly without a full understanding of the ramifications of doing that. And we continue to do that with reckless abandon without a full understanding. And because a lot of the impacts or effects of that are not necessarily kinetic, it tends to be written off as we're a bunch of people wearing tinfoil hats and we're Luddites and we're holding up. Yes, stop me if you've heard this before. Versus we're paid to look at that and say, that's great. And it's a wonderful thing, but we're paid to think like the bad guys and say, how really can I use that if I choose? And then let's talk about what the risk versus the ROI is using that. And I think we are losing the battle with the populace because, obviously, there is a huge value proposition amongst commercial organizations to actually take your data in order for them to better serve you and create positive stickiness to you. So my fear is that right now, you know, we're surfing in a tidal wave and we're about to get swamped. And if we lose that battle, it's game over. Now, the level of threats and the level of different attacks, I mean, burglars have been finding their ways around more sophisticated locks since before either of us were born. That threat will always be there. It's just a matter of making sure that we have a lens and an insight into that and that we continue to evolve and think creatively about the problem. For me, it's more a matter of people being convinced that the lock isn't necessary, and that's what I see happen. So how do we Sorry. go about addressing a lack of public awareness or something where there's not really a technical solution? What it gets to and what we have not done a good job of is both in terms of industry as well as to the public is we talk in absolutes in terms of good or bad, secure or not secure. What we have not yet done is talked about value. You know, what is the value associated with what we do and how does it translate into something that makes sense for you? And let me just give you a very crude example off the top of my head. Okay, There are very few of us that leave our house and don't lock the door or don't, don't have a lock on their door and actually use the lock on their door. There are very few of us outside of the garage who don't beat the lock on their car. Because in the physical world, there is a value associated in their minds of doing these things. Now, you could counter that, okay, in the neighborhood I live in, the rate of crime 
of any sort is infinitesimal. And the rate of break-in of any sort is infinitesimal. And the last time someone wandered into a house or even attempted to steal a car has been virtually non-existent. But still, every car lock is here because the nature of what we're asking them to do versus the value proposition that it presents, it's an easy thing in their mind in terms of both the activity versus the value and the value loss that they will achieve. The value proposition of giving away your data is convenience, and convenience is time, and time is valuable to the average individual. We have not yet shown nor necessarily created that the company you work for is doing a damn good job of trying to get there in terms of two-factor. We have not necessarily shown or created that if we just do these easy things, whatever these easy things are, that we can create some value in terms of that same level of safety and security around your data. And it's easy versus you'll have to have 1,756 different passwords. They have to be 16 characters long. And, oh, by the way, you must change them every six hours. That kind of sucks. So we've got to get better at not showing our work but showing our value. And that's a different model for us. Because, again, going back to that communication and explanation piece, our answer to that is to break out a petabyte's worth of log data and say, see, it's all here, and if you don't get it, you're stupid. we got to get better at that. And until we can crack that code, we're going to continue to have challenge. My problem is the pace of the industries out there pushing that it's okay to surrender this data is outpacing our ability to get that value message out there, primarily because we haven't shown it and we haven't made it easy. we got to get better at those. I'll get off my soapbox now. I can hear Britta smiling, and she's like, yeah, he's not going to get off his soapbox. I wasn't going to say anything. No, no, I have nothing to say to that. Do you want to shoot Maggie (laughs) one more question? Maggie, five years from now, actually probably sooner, but five years from now, you're going to be on the other end of this conversation. <laughs> you're going to be in my seat talking to someone coming up from junior high, high school, the college, et cetera, looking to go down your path. What is the one piece of advice or counsel you would give them? So many of the opportunities that have come my way were a little bit out of my comfort zone for me to even put myself in the running for. So. I think the key differentiator <laughs> so so often is just having the confidence or at least faking the confidence enough to make yourself noticeable, put yourself in the room, ask questions, and just be present. I'll give an example of that. So I was in a class at Stanford on cryptography with uh, Professor Bonet, and I cold emailed someone at Stanford who had actually worked on the legal case between Apple and the FBI after the San Bernardino shooting. This is a way to leverage connections, but not really because I had never met this person, and yet she agreed to eat lunch with me and uh, taught me so much about iPhone privacy and the sort of ongoing legal battle over encryption. And I learned so much from her in in just such a short interaction. And I think 
especially in security, people are very willing to share their expertise, to talk to newcomers especially. I, I've felt pretty welcomed even as a early career professional. And there are just so many opportunities to learn from other people in different areas, especially at a time now when we're looking at a shortage of people with the right skills. There are a lot of open roles in security at the moment. And even if you don't think you're 100% qualified, I think just putting your name in the running can really go a long way and you can surprise yourself in the process. Excellent. Thank you both so much for joining us. I've been sitting here madly grabbing notes. And what I like is we're all at different points in our career as well as our life. I've got kids right on the edge of deciding, what am I going to be when I grow up, um, Maggie? And, and I've I've listened to your path that you've gone along with, though. What am I going to be when I grow up? I see Kim, you know, who's a little bit grown, more grown up than both of us. Um, but you've grown up over and over and over and over in life, right? You know, you're, you're never happy with where you're at. You're always moving on and pushing upward. And, and one of the themes that I heard from this conversation, and it's interesting because it harkens me back to another podcast that we did in August 2017 with two of my favorite people, um, Jennifer Manella and, and Shannon Litz, but we spoke a lot about giving back to the industry. And there's so many, these incredibly busy people, as both of you are too, but the satisfaction that you're finding really by making life, it's a constant give back, professionally, personally, and in other ways. And Maggie, you've been on the receiving end of some phenomenal mentors, which this industry is full of. I think what this says to all of us, no matter where we are in our career, we have an opportunity to impact for good those around us that are at various stages in their professional career. Maggie, good guidance to all of us with, you know, being present, having that open mind, always learning, being inquisitive. Um, we're learning so much from those around us. Everyone can be doing something for the profession as well as within our own organizations, which is an empowering place to be and believing in ourselves um, that we can make that contribution. And, and then Kim, yes, thank you for reminding us that bad stuff has always been happening and bad stuff will continue to stay happening. That's a, that's a pleasant idea. Um, not, no cybersecurity professionals out of a job anytime soon, but this human element really is where we need to be focused, um, building teams, building a culture that's diverse really in every sense of the word because that makes all of us hey. um, stronger and our groups better. Hey, Britta, since you brought it up, you know, the, the, the obvious counterpoint to someone who says bad stuff is always there and always happen is, okay, are you insane or just a masochist because you still keep getting up to go do the work? <laughs> you know, the advice and counsel that I give to anyone to answer my own question that I asked you, Maggie, is be passionate. Let's be clear. There are a whole, whole lot easier ways to make a living. <laughs> You know, there are pieces and parts of this job that are, you know, misunderstood, forgotten, trivialized, three o'clock in the morning phone calls, having executives not listen to what you told them at four o'clock on Thursday afternoon so that you're not fighting an issue at three in the morning on Saturday. Those things happen. It is the nature of some of the work. But, you know, when people ask me, why do you do it? And Britta, you've heard me use this before. I talk about the single mom at Walmart. 
I used to be in payment processing doing work for uh, as the CISO of a payment processing company. And I would say, look, think about the single mom at Walmart who is working three jobs, you know, raising two kids alone, doing the best that she can to stay on the right side of poverty. It's coupon clipping day. And it's shopping day. She clips her coupon. She goes shopping. She's managed to get a couple of extra treats for the kids. And she goes up to check out, and her card is declined. And it's declined because some bad guy either hacked Walmart's systems and shut them down so she can't make her purchases or hacked her accounts through my systems and stole her data and information. And every day, a cybersecurity professional gets up and does what he or she does to make sure that that doesn't happen. At some fundamental, visceral level, our job is to whoop up on the bad guys. And you got to be passionate about that. You know, no, I'm not a cop. I'm not a fireman. I'm not a soldier. But like you, Maggie, I stand in the gap. And everything that I do is designed to stand in the gap. This is a job about being passionate. If you're not passionate about this, God bless you, God love you, find something you are passionate about and go do it. Because if you don't have that passion, this job will burn you out and eat your lunch within a couple of years. But if you're passionate about it, yeah, there's a whole lot of opportunity here and a whole lot of need. That's the old guy perspective. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it doesn't do any good to look down on regular users or people who aren't informed about security and sort of (laughs) laugh at them. But we're thinking about usability a lot more and keeping that in mind as we build products and design products that can empower those normal users to help secure their own devices and their own accounts and catch the bad guys earlier. I think that's um, something that has come more into focus in recent years and will help a lot as everyday users have more devices and more things to protect that they can be informed and participate in the experience of security. It's something that I'm looking forward to. Awesome. At the end of the day, it's all about the people. So thank you both for being passionate people and being here with us. And for our listeners, um, maybe a takeaway, find someone to mentor you and find someone you can mentor. I I do think the industry certainly benefits from the people, the passionate people. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Please tune in next month when we'll have more interesting discussions. Have a great day. 